Hi, everybody. Welcome to Busy Living Sober. Busy Living Sober. Busy Living Sober. It's episode 213. 213 episodes. Crazy. With Bryn Sicipio. And I said it right, didn't I? Absolutely. What's going on? How are you today? I am doing great today. As I said, I'm living the quarantine dream. <laughs> I love that quarantine dream. Who would have ever even thought we'd be living in a quarantine? That's just a dream in itself, isn't it? Seriously. <laughs> it's crazy. And you have four kids. I do. I do. We are a very busy household from one to 16. And you're doing it and you're staying sober. So I am actually, so this is something that we had talked about was I am not a person in recovery, but I work with people who are in recovery. Right. And that's an interesting thing. And I, um, I would love to know for one, what made you get into a field that you were going to help addicts and alcoholics? So this is my evolution of how I got to where I was. So my undergraduate degree is actually in criminal justice. And when um, I did my internship, I went to Westchester University and you have to do a summer long internship. I interned at the adult probation and parole department in Montgomery County. Uh, and then shortly after graduation, I got hired there. And the office is divided up into teams based on certain regions or certain focuses. And the team that I was on, to make a very long story short, we were working with individuals that were having problems following the rules, so to speak. So I was in court all the time. I was constantly issuing warrants, constantly going to jails to meet with people that had gotten rearrested and bringing them back to court. And as you can imagine, I mean, I would say anywhere between 80 to 90% of the individuals that I was working with had a history of substance abuse, right? So I did that for a couple of years. And then I thought to myself, there has to be something more to this, right? And so while it's fun, um, you know, searching people's, uh, you know, homes and trying to find the drugs and, you know, kind of playing detective and uh, there's certain aspects of it that I loved, it really was limited in how effective I was helping people. Mm. Um, and I didn't want to like play cops and robbers, right? That wasn't my goal in life. So I was looking up schools in the Philadelphia area for graduate programs, and I came across LaSalle University. At the time, their graduate program was called Clinical Counseling Psychology, and they had a marriage and family therapy track in there. And I was like, oh, this really speaks to me. I'm always um, what I call like interviewing people when I meet with them. I want to know who they are and where they came from and about their experiences. It's just I really love connecting with people. So I went to school while I was working at the probation and parole department, um, but the criminal justice system is something that I've always enjoyed working with anyway, right? And when you talk about working with systems, which is what marriage and family therapists do, we work with systems. I mean, there's no more complex system than the criminal justice system, right? So after I graduated, I worked for an outpatient agency that was contracted with the criminal justice system. So again, a lot of the individuals I was working with there had a history of drug and alcohol abuse. And then I went, uh, made the transition full-time. And then eventually I was working for uh, the drug court program in Montgomery County. And then I was the clinical uh, supervisor there. And then uh, after that went and broke out into my own private practice. So really 
I would probably say all of my experience clinically has been working with individuals that have a history of substance abuse. And either they have the history of substance abuse um, or they're married to someone or they were raised by alcoholics or addicts. So my, you know, again, my training as a marriage and family therapist is I may work with one person sitting in front of me, but we're gonna talk about the whole family system. Okay, I have so many questions for you. <laughs> for one, I love that you came. It's so interesting how I, I always feel like it's divine intervention, right? Like it doesn't matter because always, you know, God gets in the way, gets into it somehow. And so when you met the people that were had been incarcerated or were going to be incarcerated or were being sentenced, what percentage of those people would you say were, were dealing, were battling the, the disease of addiction? We're, we're going to call the addiction because that's the total umbrella yeah, thing that right. they, in mental health. And for the people that are listening, if you deal with insurance companies, right, you can say this, it's all underneath the mental health, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, honestly, busy. I, I mean, at any given time, probably anywhere to 80 to 90%. And the individuals that I would say fall under the, the lower category of 80%, it's probably only because they haven't identified or been honest about that other piece that's been happening for them. Isn't that interesting? Or no one has, no one has identified it. Right. You know? It's so crazy. And when you mentioned drug court and people who don't know, because we have people listening all over the world. So if you were to say drug court in Montgomery County is in Pennsylvania, it's in yeah. Southeastern Pennsylvania. I'm just going to throw that out there. And so that being said, so what is drug court? Okay. So drug court's a phenomenal program that was actually started in uh, Miami-Dade County, Florida. I think back in 1987, I want to say, don't quote me on that, by a judge who saw what I was seeing that so many people kept coming through this revolving door of the criminal justice system, had a history of substance abuse or had a history of addiction and nothing was changing. You could put them in jail and it wasn't changing. They needed treatment. So drug court combines intensive court interaction with intensive treatment to support sobriety. And I believe now in the United States, there's over 3,000 drug court programs. Wow. Yeah. So it's really phenomenal. It's amazing. And then, of, so then when you get your client, now your clients today are from, you know, do a majority of them battling addiction? One or the other or someone, someone in the group? Yeah, I would say probably uh, about 70 to 75% of the individual's that I work with, there's some history somewhere in the family that's not directly with them, that substance abuse is present. I, the family piece. Yeah, huge. No man is an island, right? It is so crazy. And I'll just share a little bit of, so when I was a recovery coach for a little while, and I wanna get your thoughts on this. So when I was a recovery coach, I would always want to bring the whole family in, right? Because this is a family disease. And um, my even my ex-husband, I had to take him when I'd been sober for a while and um, I had to take him to rehab. And I find it so interesting for one, that there isn't as much transparency about what rehab is, yeah. right? Right? They don't right. tell people, oh, by the way, you're going to rehab and this is only 28 days. Maybe it's only two weeks. Maybe it's only seven days, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And your person isn't getting fixed. 
No, they're not going to come out uh, like as if they just went on one of those extreme makeover shows and they look like a completely different human being. I love what you just said. I love that. They don't come out. It's like they're, it's not an extreme makeover. So tell us what, what, how you handle things differently and how you would handle someone that's going, that's battling this disease. They come to you, walk us through the process if you would. So a couple of things, uh, specifically about me and specifically about my practice. So one thing that I don't do that I think a lot of therapists do do um, is I don't do this like very fill out 45 pages of intake paperwork information. Um, I think that can get in the way. I think it can feel very overwhelming for clients. And then I also then have to read all of those 45 pages of information and know what's on there. And through the first session that we have, I'm screening and asking a lot of those safety and important questions to begin with anyway. Um, and, and then going from there, it really depends on whether, you know, am I working with a couple? Am I working with an individual? Or am I working with the whole family? That will dictate who's in session and who's showing up. What I do with every client that I work with is I construct what's called a genogram. So I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but for anyone who hasn't, a genogram is basically a scientific family tree. And I have a book, which I don't think I have around here, you know, when you're not in your office and working home virtually, like your stuff is kind of all over the place. Um, but I have a book, it's by Monica McGoldrick and it just shows like the value of genograms and in it there's some color coded pages that are really helpful. But anyway, you map out this family tree using symbols and specific shapes and they can really demonstrate anything. So again, whether I'm working with an individual, whether I'm working with a couple or whether I'm working with a whole family, I'm always constructing and adding to this genogram because it allows me to see and highlight what the patterns are through the generations. And the patterns could be something as obvious as every male in our family was an alcoholic, or it could be something more covert about secret keeping and who's not talking about the anxiety or who's experienced losses early on in their life that just could kind of get brushed under the rug. And then what that does is for the people that are in front of me, it one can help alleviate a lot of the shame that they experience. Mm -hmm. So many people come into session feeling like something's wrong with me. I messed up in some way. I'm a bad person. I'm not good enough. I'm not lovable. And when we expand their view, and say, well, actually this theme or this mental health or this addiction or this suicidal ideation has really been present throughout generations of your family. Or, you know, perhaps you didn't have a strong attachment to your mom because it looks like she really experienced some pretty extreme postpartum depression that really got in the way and it wasn't because she didn't love you. So when you can open up that scope and expand it a little bit more, it helps them feel more open to the relationships in their life. It helps decrease their shame. And I think that can really help support them or from what I've seen, it does help support them in their efforts of recovery. Because you know, addiction isn't just, oh, I woke up one day and let me be a raging alcoholic because this will be fun, right? It's an expression of all the mess. I love that because as you probably know, I don't know if you do, but um, I, so I start, I coined the frame sober, not ashamed a long time ago because there was so much shame and, it, and I didn't think there was any way out because generationally no one ever got better, right? They'd say, oh, they're an alcoholic. But then when it came to like, oh, you can actually change. There's actually solutions out there. 
was mm-hmm. like, wow, okay, mm-hmm. I can actually change. I love that you did that you go and you bring that family piece in because again, I think it is so utterly important to realize you don't get a makeover. You don't go and come out and totally made up and have new hairdo, new outfit and everything else. And you've lost 50 pounds. Um, <laughs> it's uh, the person is still there. And in fact, um, I think that when people go into treatment, it's just literally the very beginning, like you just scratch the surface, right? Yeah. So, and because I do family therapy, um, again, whether it's an individual that I'm working with or always exploring those relationships and the value of those relationships, the framework in which I operate under is called contextual family therapy. That's deep work. So I tell all my clients, we're going to be together for a period of time. This isn't like you come in for six months once a week, and then you're done, right? That there's a layers of stuff that we have to go through. And when that work is done, that you will have all the skills and you will have the healing that you need. My goal is to never see you again. I am absolutely not a fan of creating a dependency on therapy. And I'm also not going to send you out into the world half done. Love that. Love that. Because there is people think, oh my gosh, how long am I going to do this? And how long is this going to be going on in my life? And, um, and what do you feel as though if you see a lot, how many, how many of your patients do you think are alcohol or pills or weed? Even like people- using what? Yeah. Uh, I'm like, let's try and look at my schedule and see. <laughs> I mean, I think alcohol is huge right now. I think alcohol has always been huge. I think one of the biggest challenges with alcohol is it's not only, so I say it's not only socially acceptable, acceptable, but it's socially promoted, right? That like, if you don't drink, you have to explain or that every um, event has to surround alcohol. And then this whole like moms and wine movement where it's like a coffee mug and it's like, there could be some, is there coffee in here? Or maybe it's vodka, maybe it's wine, you know? Um, So the promotion of alcohol, I think, makes it extremely challenging for people to get sober because they talk about this is going to change my entire landscape. This is going to change how I do business. This is going to change how my boss looks at me. This is going to change the socialization we have. This may change our relationship with other parents. And then is that going to mess up my kids and their friendships? Um, So I think probably alcoholism is one of the biggest things that I work with right now. Uh, for individuals that are coming to see me. And then a lot of times from there, it's just a spiral into, you know, well, once I start drinking, then I'll do a little bit of Coke, then I'll do some pills, then I, you know. And what do you think with the pandemic that's going on right now? And we kind of made light of it a little bit and that we're like, I'm managing, I'm doing the best I can during quarantine. And I feel like the, the media, at least, especially the media, and I hate to talk about the media, but I'm going to talk about the media for two seconds, even though I'm not a big fan of the media at all. Um, they aren't really focusing as much on the fact that the mental health aspect of what is going on to our country and to the people in our country right now is like, it's debilitatingly, I, I mean, it's frightening. I mean, I have heard last week alone, I heard of two people that were killed. I mean, three people in total that were killed in a week in two different, totally two different situations. And 
this is not this is not a norm right so and people that are picking up drinking and people and marital problems i mean i'm sure you are because you're right there <laughs> you're like at yeah. the battle lines how's it going and will you talk to us about that yeah so first i think it's important to understand that um mental health has always been extremely undervalued in our country and i think you can see that very easily by the lack of resources that are available to all people in all areas, right? Um, from rural to inner city uh, and everywhere in between. And I also think you can see that very easily by looking at what insurance companies decide is appropriate mm -hmm. to not only pay the clinicians that are delivering these services, but also the amount of time they believe is warranted to support people. Um, like you said, someone using, um, let's just pick like the, an example that people can really picture in their minds, someone who's homeless, uh, living in Kensington, which is like the heroin epicenter, right. Uh, and decides to go to rehab for the first time and wants insurance to pay for it, whether it's Medicare or Medicaid, 14 days, for, for, 14 days. Uh, we're, I can't even, I can't even speak. Like, please, CEO of insurance company, when your kid's a heroin addict and is homeless and in Kensington, if you think 14 days is going to give them that extreme makeover, like, no. So I think it's important to a, understand that the we've always been behind, right? We've always been playing catch up. And I think that when this pandemic hit, it just really slowed everything down. Now, one thing that I think is helpful is because on March 13th, 2020, when the world went virtual on a dime, everyone said, oh, okay, everything's on Zoom now. Everything's on Doxy now. Everything is on these HIPAA compliant platforms now. And so therefore there are people that are seeking treatment that maybe wouldn't have before because they're a lot more comfortable with this platform. Mm -hmm. I've also gotten positive feedback from clients that say, um, I wouldn't have been able to come see you because I would have, if we were meeting in person, I would have to factor in the drive time or my kids, are old enough that I can put them in another room with a movie and see you, but I can't leave them at home by myself. So the accessibility I think has certainly been helpful, but as far as like the mental health, it's, it's, it's not good and it's not good for anybody. And so it's not good for people that have really never had um, pretty serious mental health concerns before. And then for people that have always struggled, it's really magnifying the stress that they're experiencing. So I'm certainly seeing a lot of people that are coming in that maybe say, you know, before this, I would have been, I never in my million years would have someone said to me that, you know, you're having panic attacks and now you're having panic attacks and you need to come in. Now, as far as the, the drinking and, and the drugs aspect of it, there's just no deterrence anymore. So a natural deterrent would be, I have to get up in the morning and I can't go into work smelling like a brewery. Well, now you can just sit behind the computer screen and check emails all day in your pajamas, you know, didn't brush your teeth for three days and nobody knows. I never even thought of that. Oh my gosh. I never even thought of that, Bryn. That's crazy. Yeah. So all those natural deterrents, I have to get up early. We have to go to the kids events. I have to give a presentation. I have a meeting with my boss. I have, you know, I have to meet with clients. So many, and there's people that log into these larger group meetings that don't even turn their camera on because they're in such a disheveled state. 
whether it's hungover or just tired or whatever the case may be. Um, and you know, everyone's dressed from the waist up. No, <laughs> no one's even putting like good pants on. Pants on, they might not be good. They have holes in <laughs> So all of those natural deterrents aren't in place anymore. That's so interesting because I never thought about that. I never thought about people having to get up to go to work. Like that is a deterrent, like, and people being around you to smell you. Cause I guess you, I mean, honestly, I guess, I mean, when I drank, I remember going to church and people, and I would have bathed in Chanel and people would be like, oh my God, I'm like, ah! um, that's so fascinating. I never even thought about that aspect. And how many of your clients use 12 step? How does 12? So that's probably a mix, right? So that's probably 50, 50, I would say. Um, there's a lot of hesitation with going into a public group setting, even though it's anonymous, right? But there, which I totally understand who wants to walk into a room full of strangers um, and admit to something that you already feel so shameful about. So I talk with them about the value of that and how everyone else is there too. And you're not walking into a room full of, uh, we aren't addicts, right? And that can be uh, supportive in and of itself. But what I tell people is I support the 12 steps. I support honestly, any type of healthy, positive peer support. My box that you need to check for that is you have to have someone that you can talk to about your addiction that doesn't have authority over you, like a parole officer, like your boss, maybe like your parent. And that also doesn't have that strong emotional relationship with you, like a sibling or like your spouse, because those people, there's great consequences when you express your feelings to them or when you express that you're struggling or if you express that you had a relapse. So you need this third person that you trust who also is a little bit more independent that you can call up and say, Hey, I'm having cravings. Hey, I screwed up yesterday. Hey, what do you do when you're faced with this situation? So I don't care if you find that person in AA, ACOA, smart recovery, whatever the case may be, but you need to have that third person, that independent party there. It doesn't judge you, right? Exactly. Exactly. Cause we all feel so judged. Everyone does all the time. And it's, it can be debilitating, right? It can be like, and I think the biggest thing that we, that is ourselves, right? We judge ourselves the most. Oh, of course. I mean, we're our own worst critics, right? We assume everyone is looking at us, thinking about us, you know, staring at us, making judgments on us. When really I then say, well, how often are you judging other people? And sometimes people say, I judge other people a lot. Okay. Well then you need to stop doing that. Right because that's not helping you or anybody else. And sometimes they say, well, I don't think about anybody else. I'm too worried about myself. Okay, well then no one else was probably thinking about you either. Now, the way you just said that, I, I wanna ask you, so what do you say to somebody who has been judging themselves so much that it becomes debilitating because they don't want to leave their house because they're judging everybody with the minute they walk out the door, then they get in the car and then they're rethinking the whole thing. And every, so it's easy to say, all right, stop doing that. But oh, right. Yeah. Is a really stop doing that takes a while. Like what are your, what tools would you recommend to somebody who's having that problem? So two words that I use frequently in therapy are intentions and expectations. 
what is your intention in judging yourself? What's the goal here? And then what are you expecting the outcome to be? What are the expectations? Do you want everyone else to judge you? How is that serving you? What would you like to do differently about that? For a lot of people, negative or unhealthy or undesirable behaviors that they engage in, there is some benefit to that, right? So some people will say, okay, well, the benefit in me judging myself so harshly has been in certain areas of my life, I've really been able to excel because I don't settle and I strive for perfection. Okay, well, let's not take away that piece of it. Let's keep that piece there because you that piece seems to be valuable and has worked out well for you. But the part that's not so valuable, how can you be patient with yourself? How can you give yourself grace? How can you be a little bit more kind to yourself? A lot of people now, you know, like the self-care buzzword has been going around for a long period of time now, you know, the, definitely the last five years, like self-care, self-care. And originally it was like these like luxurious bubble baths and massages. And I think those are important, right? Then the pendulum began to swing a little bit and it was like self-care is not just like luxury, but it's also things to do, like get your bills organized and make sure you stay on top of your laundry. I would like to starting to add in a third piece of self-care where we just talk nicely to ourselves. Because if it's, if we're not, I mean, we can engage in all the bubble baths and be as organized as we want. But if when we look in the mirror, we're not talking nicely to ourselves and we're not thinking nice things about ourselves, all of that other type of self-care, it, it's limited. It's limited. So I really encourage people um, to really look at themselves and say, you know, and I don't care how far back you have to go, but like, let's think about a moment where you felt proud. Let's think about a moment where um, you spoke, even though your voice may have been shaking. Let's think about a moment where you said, I feel really good today. I really love my body today. Let's go back to those moments. What was happening there and try to replicate them as much as possible. And a lot of times people, I don't know, Stuart Smalley, do you remember who Stuart Smalley was? I, I mean, I've known probably a lot older than you, but Stuart yeah, Smalley. Oh, and gosh darn it, people like me, yes. <laughs> and everybody feels so uncomfortable. They're like, this feels so like, you know, I feel like such a loser doing this, right? Yeah, yeah. To say I love you to myself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you but you feel like a loser because you have this belief somewhere that you shouldn't be saying that. Right. And that's why I think we raise people to be like that, don't we? We raise our kids. Do we raise our kids to do that? I don't know. So, well, I'll tell you this. And part, so sometimes there's a benefit of being a therapist and a parent, and sometimes there's a limit to it. <laughs> My daughter, who's six, has red hair, gorgeous, gorgeous red hair. And of course, as anyone who has red hair or has a child who has red hair knows, anytime you are out in public, someone will say to her, your hair is so beautiful, your hair, right? From day one, I told her, you say, thank you. I, I don't make, ex I don't say, oh, it's genetic or yeah, it's cute. Or I don't make a joke about it. Like she better never dye it. I, I say, thank you. Because that's something that is beautiful about her and that she should feel proud about. So from day one, she says, thank you. Someone says, oh, I love your red hair. Thank you. And then it's funny, so many people are taken back by that. And they're like, oh, oh, that's really cute that she said thank you. I'm like, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is, this is how you raise confident people that don't feel ashamed about themselves. Well, that is amazing. Cause it is true. Cause sometimes we go into a diatribe of like, why is it, why is it red? And this is what it is. And it, like, does anybody even want to hear that stuff? No. Right. right. Or even about women say, oh, I love your dress. And we either say how cheap we got it for, right? Or we point out that there's like a hole in it somewhere or something. Like, just say, thank you. Just say, thank you. It's all you have to do. Thank you. But it is so hard. I know. Right? It's retraining our brains because our brains are like, oh my gosh, wait a minute. I have to give you an excuse as to why I don't deserve this. It's kind of like that. It sounds like, right? Yep, exactly. Exactly. I have to tell you all the reasons why this isn't true. Now, do you still help help people that are incarcerated or were incarcerated? No, so I don't work with that um, that population anymore. Although some of them I still keep in touch with that I that I used to work with, and they're doing well, which is always such you know so wonderful to hear. Well, I'm sure it was heartbreaking when you'd see someone and they're like about to go be incarcerated for a certain amount of yeah. time. And you're like, they're really not a bad person. They just really got caught. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, some people, I should actually say, yeah, some people that I work with um, get arrested for DUIs, you know, and have to do periods of time for things like that. Um, But not to the extent as which people that I used to work with that were, you know, in that revolving door of the criminal justice system. But that must, it, it sounds like it was an amazing launch pad because my husband and I always talk about it. We're like, how many people that are actually in jail right now or in prisons right now have really not done, like, unfortunately, they had that, I love, what was the name of it? The gene, what did you call it? A G what? The genogram. The genogram. Mm-hmm. And then they, if they were to look at their family tree, it's like, oh, this person had it, this person had it, this person had it, this person had it. Okay, that's oh, where I got it. Yeah. Oh, so I'll share this with you. So when I did work with the drug court program, I had a client who knew, had an incredible, came from a very large family and had an incredible knowledge of their family history. So we're really getting into their genogram. And I'm talking like third cousins, great grandmother. I mean, they knew everything. It was phenomenal. So we map it all out. And of course you always run out of paper. So I have like paper spread out, you know, everywhere. And um, I said, let's go through. And I had done the symbols, but I said, let's go through and highlight in orange, everyone in your family who has an addiction. So like the whole page is orange, right? So then I said, like the whole, literally, like the whole thing is orange. And then I said, let's go through and in a different color, identify everyone who's died from their addiction. Nobody. So then what do I do with that information? I go back to the court conference. So in the drug court program, the therapists and the probation officers and the judge have a conference every week about people in the program. That's what makes it so intense. Everyone's on the same page. So I go back and I say to the judge, I'm like, judge, listen, this person, when you're speaking with them, because every single week, the participants speak directly with the judge one-on-one. I said, you can't talk with them about death being a possibility or being a deterrent because in their family, no one dies from their addiction. I said, we just did this whole map. So it's important to use that information to be able to understand like exactly what the beliefs are within those family systems. Because when the judge is up there saying, you know, you could die from this disease, people are saying, well, like my 90 year old grandma still hasn't died, you know? It's identifying all that stuff. Oh my gosh. And how interesting is it that people, how many people were like, 
I'd rather pick up the drink. Like how many times they'd have to go to jail before they finally got it. Like, I really want, I really want this. Like what, I mean, I think that you have to, at least for me, I had to want this. Like how many people uh, are forced on that you're like, that don't really want it? Well, I think it doesn't, uh, to be very honest with you, however you get connected to treatment is how you get connected to treatment. Whether you feel that the world is caving underneath your feet and this is your last resort, or you are dragged there kicking and screaming. Um, I don't care how you get there as long as you get there, right? And then we can work with you from that point in time. So there's definitely people that we saw enter that program or entering the therapy now that you know are very resistant and others that are very open and both can be very successful. Sometimes it's just a matter of breaking those patterns. You know, when I worked with drug court, people who had a, a lapse of use in the program were incarcerated for like 48 hours just to stop the behavior, right? Or 24 hours, just as we're just gonna, it's like pulling the emergency brake on a car, right? Like we're just gonna stop the behavior. That's it, we're gonna break this pattern and get you refocused back into treatment. I love that. I love that. And how many people stay clean from, and what do you think, the, what are the percentages of people that stay clean after they go to drug court? If there is such a percentage. Yeah. You know what I would have to, I mean, and again, it's like, how do you define that? Because there's people that, um, I mean, unfortunately there's people that die, right? Like that's a part of the reality. There was people, someone I know just celebrated 10 years that was in the program who I love to death. So if they're listening, they know who they are. And there is, um, you know, people who are clean and then they have, you know, a brief period of relapse and then they get themselves sober again. So I think it's kind of hard to track that accurately. Uh, I do know that they track like rearrest rates, that that is one, you know, thing that you can track accurately, but I don't know. It's been a while since I've worked with that program. So I'm not exactly sure what the most recent statistic would be on that. Well, it sounds like, you are doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing. I love it. I honestly do. I mean, I, you know, people are like, I don't know how you're a therapist. And some of my clients are so funny. They're like, I don't know how you listen to someone like me all day long, you know? And I say to them, because it's not, while I have great empathy for your pain, and while I certainly feel your pain, and there's days that I'm very tired after I work all day and seeing clients, I also see the human in you. And I also love all of my clients and care about them very deeply. And I see their potential as well. So part of my job, not only is to carry that pain, but it's also to carry that hope for them. And, and when you see progress, even in the smallest of ways, it's really incredible, it really is. It's awesome. It's awesome. Well, Bryn, this has been incredible. And so people, if they wanna see you, I'm gonna have your information in the, in the actual notes. And you take, so obviously anybody can be anywhere around the world at this point, right? So we, because of, so I have myself and I have two other therapists that work in my practice and we are, we can see people and we're in Pennsylvania. Okay. That's what our license limits us to. Now, sometimes because of the pandemic, other states will let you see clients for a sh like, you know, 10 sessions or 15 sessions. Um, but we can definitely see anyone who's in the state of Pennsylvania. Well, that's good to know. 
But if not, if people have any questions, I will I will actually steer them your way if they were if any of the, any of this actually prompted somebody into thinking. Oh yeah, I think it's so important. I'm you know sometimes we have clients that we can't work with either because of a scheduling issue, um, or if they have an insurance that you know we're not paneled with or whatever the case may be. I tell clients all the time, I'm like send me the information, ask me the questions because it's the number one success factor in therapy is the therapeutic relationship. And so it's so important that you feel comfortable and get connected to someone um, that, that makes sense to you and that works for you. So I'm definitely open to helping people get connected in whatever way they can. So definitely email me, call me, and I will help you as much as I possibly can. Well, thank you so much again, Bryn, for coming on. And thanks for sharing all this amazing information. It's been awesome getting to know you. This has been wonderful. I love it. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you. And everybody, thanks for listening. And until next time, keep getting busy living sober. Bye-bye.